Welcome to Mintcast, the podcast by the Linux Mint community for all users of Linux. This is episode 418, recorded on Sunday, August 6, 2023. Loving life, I'm Joe. Staying right at home, I'm Moss. Ten seconds from Bliss, I'm Bill. Wandering the world, I'm Majid. All right, first up in the news, Mint Monthly News, Fedori Asahi Remix debuts, Wine 8.13 releases, Debian makes Risk 5 official, Inkscape 1.3 released, Canonical ceases LXD maintenance, Google will start deleting inactive, inactive accounts in December, Google does something dangerous to Chromium, Chrome OS splits browser from OS, Derek Wong leaves XFS. In security and privacy, Zenbleed, a new flaw in AMD's N2 processors. Then in our wanderings, Joe fixes a van, Moss just tries to keep up, Bill rants about Audacity, and Majid joins in the heat wave. In our innards section, we discuss the passing of Kevin Mitnick and a few of his repercussions to the Linux and security communities. And finally, the feedback and a couple of suggestions. So, in the news, take it, Joe. Well, this is from uh, Mint Monthly News, July 2023, and this is from the Linux Mint blog provided from Londoner. Uh, this is a quote from Clem. Work started on LMDE6. The upcoming version of our Debian-based distribution will be codenamed Faye. Faye? It will come with all the features and changes introduced in Linux Mint 21.2. There is no ETA for its release. Once everything is ready, we'll take the opportunity to work on additional features and see how much we want to further reduce the gap in functionality between Linux Mint and LMDE. In parallel to LMDE 6, we're also planning to release an Edge ISO for Linux Mint 21.2. This ISO will feature a kernel 6.2 and make it easier to boot Mint on brand new hardware. Looking further ahead, after LMDE 6 and Edge ISO, we're likely to reduce the scope for Linux Mint 21.3, which is planned for Christmas 2023. We've got many exciting ideas. I'm sure some of the cool new features we have in mind will be implemented, but we want to prioritize some long-term aspects and dedicate some of our time to them. Namely, we want to update our ISO production tools and fix secure boot. We also want to spend time on studying the pros and cons of Wayland and to assess the work needed in its potential adoption. Last but not least, we're keeping an eye on Ubuntu, their increased focus, and my screen jumped. Pros and cons of Wayland, and last but not least, we're keeping an eye on Ubuntu, their increased focus on Snap, the quality of their 24.04 package base, and what this means for us going forward. Note, we've got a vocal minority of LMDE users. As usual, we'll come up with a great release. I appreciate the fact that they love what we do. I ask them to please remain civil when it comes to criticizing Ubuntu and to understand that we do what's best for Linux Mint as a whole. Both when we work on LMDE, when we work on Linux Mint, and when we form long-term strategies. The news sometimes gets blown out of proportion and people can get really passionate over very little. If you look at the past, you can appreciate how calm we are as a team and how serene we are with our development. 
We're rarely affected by upstream decisions. When we are or when we might be, we're able to invest to mitigate them and get to where we want to be. That's how we've got something like LMDE already, whether we ever need it or not. Don't panic. Don't lobby for rust decisions based on fears or passion. We know who we are and we know what we're doing. So essentially from this, I'm garnering that um, despite the fact that some people do want them to jump ship away from Ubuntu and go strictly to LMDE by adding all the feature sets from the uh, Linux Mint version to the LMDE version, um, he's saying that it's a little early to rush to that and we like how we're doing things now. Sit down, shut up, and watch the magic. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, crying out loud, if you want to use the LMDE, use it. It's there, you know. Um, I am really looking forward to this one. I may I am switch too. to it. I am, yeah, me too. Because I, I have done a couple of Debian distros based on the current Debian, and I like it better than I ever have before. But I it does wish... sound like there's not feature parity, so I don't know. I, I mean, I they've been hedging five. Their, sorry, they've been hedging their bets on this for about seven, eight years now. Um, which I'm is fine, at. which yeah, yeah, which is fine. But then, at what point does it stop being just a just in case Ubuntu goes away? To a, you get the feeling it's not you know, um, it's not top shelf. You know what I mean? It's not the main thing that they're trying to promote. It's not their main focus. Yeah, which is fine. But then it's kind of like, well, you know, as I said, you know, most people and they themselves are kind of mentioning as well. You know, LMD exists in case there's issues with Ubuntu. Um, right. And there's also well, that. Yeah, but now there are big issues yeah. with Ubuntu. So, and there's also that the, vocal minority that uses LMDE because they're against Ubuntu. So, surely they should put even more work into uh, LMD rather than, as it says, well, surely the- they are. Well, <laughs> I think it's just that they've got, they've got LMDE users and they've got the flagship users. And they're trying to, this is the, as far as I know, it's the only distribution that's doing anything like this, uh, where you've got people on both sides, you know, that have their reasons for using one or the other. They've been doing it longer, but Sousa did just start mirroring Red Hat. (laughs) Right. But is that the same thing? (laughs) That's not the same thing at all. No. <laughs> well, with this, once again, um, yes, the Linux Mint team, Clem and his team, are doing some for LMDE. But if there is a want for more development for LMDE, then it's going to be the community that is going to be providing it. They're just, at this point, providing a framework for just-in-case e- Either one of two things. It was originally planned for if Ubuntu went away. But if Ubuntu really does cross a major line finally one day whatever and clem's like nope we're done with using them as our base lmde is not starting from zero like a completely snap based desktop right and uh user space utilities yeah Uh uh-huh i wish they would the only thing i wish they would make a little bit better and I appreciate that I'm not going to get any support on this, but uh, make it easier for it to work uh, with SID. If I want to install it and then change the De- Debian repos over to unstable, it should still work. Um, but it does not. So that's the only thing I wish it would do. 
Well, yeah, but people like you and Dale are just weird, and we'll, mm-hmm. we'll just put up with you, and, and it's all right. It's, you're, you're, yeah. I, Anyhow. That's how that's how it is when you're an arch user. That's just the way you think, I suppose. Oh, are you an arch user? <laughs> I am. Did I fail to mention that? You did. Uh, yeah, it's I, been more I, than I, five minutes. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. We, we never knew anything about that at all. In any way oh, gee whiz. Now Anywho, you know. Moving on. I use Blend. Anyway, that didn't moving do nothing on. for me. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually downloading Blender as we speak. So anyway, um, okay. Next piece of news: our new flagship distro, Fedora Asahi Remix. So this is from AsahiLinux.org. Uh, for people who don't know, Asahi is the uh, port of Linux for the M1 Apple Silicon Macs. Um, it's been it's it's based on Arch, and they're doing a lot of work, you know, reverse engineering um, compatibility for that uh, platform. So, on their website, you've all been waiting for it. Many of you are guests, and now, as announced at Flocked Fedora, it's time to make it official. The new Asahi Linux flagship distribution will be Fedora Asahi Remake. We're confident that this new flagship will get us much closer to our goal of a polished Linux experience on Apple Silicon. And we hope you will enjoy using it as much as we are enjoying working on it. We're still working out the kinks and making things even better. So we're not quite ready to call this a release yet. We aim to officially release the Fedora Asahi remix by the end of 2020, August 2023. Look forward to many new features, machine support and more. From the state of the Asahi Linux project, our goal has been to bring full Linux support to Apple Silicon machines across all distributions. Supporting new hardware like this, especially hardware this special in this relatively young um, embedded ARM64 desktop Linux space is no easy task and involves a huge amount of reverse engineering, development, integration work spanning all the way from bootloaders to desktop audio servers. Much of their initial work focused on kernel and bootloaders which can be shared between distros but but they started reaching the point where kernel support was enough for a bare bones usable system still had a lot of distro integration work left. Making hardware work out of the box requires a bunch of subtle integration engineering as well as working together with user space level projects to improve them and add the features we need for these systems. Our goal, they say, is for all distros to be to eventually integrate all this work so that users can use their choice of distro and be confident it will work well on their machine. But in order to kick off this process we had to prototype what this integration looks like, which meant we had to create our own distro. And so Asahi Linux Arch Linux ARM Remix was born. Took Arch Linux ARM, added our own overlay package repository, and packaged all of our integration work there. Notably, this is a fully downstream project. We have no significant one with upstream Arch Linux ARM or Arch Linux, and we directly use the Arch Linux ARM package repositories for the core distro. Our overlay just adds integration scripts, bootloader components, extra user space support packages for things like audio, and our forked kernel and Mesa packages. This worked well in to bring Asahi Linux out into the world in the hands of eager users, but it was but a step along the way to our ultimate goal. After all, maintaining bespoke downstream distro remixes is a chore, and we can't rely on unofficial third-party support to bring our work to every other distro. We've always had our sights deep sights on deeper cooperation with upstream distros to bring Apple Silicon support directly to them as an officially supported platform. And the Arch ARM integration was mainly intended to serve as a reference for this. It didn't take long for people to start knocking on their doors. Very soon after Asahi Linux started, well before the, the ARM released, Neil Gomper joined our IRC channels and we started talking about working towards integrating our work into Fedora. This is the very first 
offer to officially collaborate with a major upstream strong, we were very excited. The Fedora Asahi project started in late 2021 and work began in 2022 alongside the Arch ARM release. Over the following year, we worked closely with the Fedora folks to fully integrate Apple Silicon support into Fedora, including all of our custom packages, kernel and mess of forks, and special image packaging requirements, and now we're finally on the final stretch before release. The Fedora Asahi effort is an upstream first, just like all of our kernel and Mesa work. Our bespoke tools like the M1, N1 low-level bootloader and our Asahi script tools are already in upstream Fedora repositories and available directly to all Fedora users, although they won't do much if you install them on a non-Apple machine. Meanwhile, our hardware-enabled package forks are kept in CRPRs maintained by the Fedora Asahi SIG, built and served from Fedora infrastructure. Collaborating with distro integration experts and using distro infra like this frees us up to continue focusing on what we do best, reverse engineer hardware and develop bespoke drivers and software. But not only that, it means we can offer an even better experience for Linux and Apple Silicon users. Working directly with upstream means not only can we integrate more closely with the core distribution, but we can get issues in other packages fixed quickly and smoothly. This is particularly important for platforms like desktop ARM64, where we still run into the random app and package bugs quite often. The ARM64 desktop Linux has been a niche platform until now, and with much less testing comes a higher propensity for bugs. It's very important that we can address these issues quickly. Dora already has a very solid, fully supported ARM64 port with a large user base in the server headless segment. So it's an excellent base to build upon and help improve the state of desktop Linux on ARM64 for everyone. We're happy to have this level of collaboration with Fedora and the Fedora folks uh, have been have been an absolutely amazing team throughout this effort. We were, they wanted to thank uh, David Kalvaka, Eric Curtin, Life Liddy, Neil Gumper, uh, Mir, uh, Michael Alexander Salim for kicking off the Asahi SIG and making this all possible. They finish off by saying we still have a lot of work to do, including integrating even more packages for new hardware support and more. Adventurous users can try out the Fedora Cyber remix today, but please expect rough spots or even complete breakage. We're very much still in the process of integrating everything and a bunch of new features are coming and things are expected to break while we get everything in shape. Please bear that in mind if you try, choose to try it ahead of time. Also ask reporters and bloggers to wait for the official release before evaluating our work. We hope you enjoy our efforts when time comes for the first official release. You may be wondering when what new features are coming, but we'll keep, have to keep that a secret until release time. Stuff isn't integrated yet. You're not even going to get a sneak peek if you install too early. Until then, please hang tight and look forward to the release. I'm Aren't quite they excited like by perpetually this, in beta with Asahi? Uh, yes, that is true. However, considering the amount of work that they're having to do, it's probably not a surprise. Oh, no, I'm just saying that, you know, some of their statements here, that if they're always in beta then they're never you know having a full release so but i mean they're, they're, they're planning on doing so it's not as if they're uh, saying that they're not going to well they're, they're planning on doing so in the next you know decade or so once the m3 is out and they got the m1 asahi working right they'll they'll you know they'll have a release i mean the only thing i didn't understand and this is a, probably just due to my lack of knowledge is how you can start off on Arch and then go on to Fedora. That bit I didn't exactly understand. Um, uh, probably it's a Fedora-like release would be my guess. Okay. okay. Well, the other thing would be Arch is very much a build-your-own distro. 
and uh, Fedora is not. So it might have cemented quite a few things for them. They didn't have to keep working around or deci- making decisions on. Uh, and I, I, I want something to be known. I'm not complaining about their release schedule or anything like that. I understand how difficult it would be to try and get Linux working on on the M1 or the M2. And I applaud their efforts. But um, it's not something that if I had an M1 or an M2 that I would wait for everything to be perfect with before I started trying the beta release because I would be waiting for forever. Well, I'm I'm tempted to try this on the M1 MacBook Air that I've got. You should. Um, I think I might try it out, actually. Anyway, and then when it's... And then if and when I think you're jumping the gun, but okay. No, no, I think you should try it, even though it is jumping the gun. Just don't be surprised when there are some things that don't mm. work, and don't say this is a garbage release, nothing works. Be like, okay, this is beta. They're still trying to to crack all the uh, garden wall for the M1. So, yeah, you know, being a being a beta tester in a sense is is not a bad thing. You know, it's it can only help the project in some way, shape, or form. And, and even halfway working Linux is still better than you know having a Mac. Yeah, Mac OS. Oh my lord! There was actually a video about that by um, Nick from my Linux experiment, which was um, I literally exactly my feeling. Great hardware. Shame about the operating system. Anyway, before we go down that tangent. Wine 8.13 is out now with plenty of bug fixes. So this is from Gaming on Linux. The latest release and the continuous cycle of development of the Windows compatibility layer Wine is out with Wine 8.13, bringing plenty of fixes and a few new features. Reminder, once a year, a new stable release is made with the next being Wine 9. And Wine is just one part of what allows Steam Play Proton to play some of the biggest games on Linux desktop and Steam Deck. Highlights from the release notes. I'm assuming that's World of Warcraft 64, uh, support in YNG Streamer, weak map support in JScript, Georgian translation, various bug fixes. Looking over the bug fixes, issues have been resolved for Steam, Medieval 2, Total War, Yu-Gi-Oh! Online 3, Alien vs Predator Classic 2000, League of Legends, Stalker, Call of Pripyat, Total War Shogun 2, Star Ocean The Last Hope HD, Fallout 3, Kena, Bridge of Spirits, Total Conflict Resistance, Dying Light 2, Staying Human, Stay Human, and more. Unfortunately, this is completely over my head because I don't game at all. Well, wine, Same here. wine is used for more than just gaming. It's used for running Windows applications on Linux. Um, yeah. The only, well, you can use like wine directly to play games, but anymore it's more common for it to um, happen through proton which uses a, a wine backend so that's why it's talked about that way so before i go off on to more of a learning spree on that one let's move on okay risk 5 is now an official debian architecture from pharonix debian 13 trixie has been a fa- aiming for official risk 5 support and indeed it will happen risk 5 has now been promoted to an official debian cpu architecture while long available as a debian port as of this weekend risk 5 64-bit is now considered an official debian architecture debian developer aurelian harno notes th- though in the announcement that the official archive for risk 5 64-bit is rather bare at the moment but will be building out soon 
quote, before you rush to update your sources.list file, I want to warn you that the archive is currently almost empty and that the only and that only the SID and experimental suites are available. The procedure is to rebootstrap the port within the official archive, which means we won't import the full Debian ports archive. Therefore, our next step is to build a minimal set of about 90 source packages using the Debian-ports archive and then import them into the official archive. These packages will be signed with a special GPG key using Debian-risk-at-list, risk-v-at-list, oh boy, Debian-risk-v-at-list.debian.org as the email address, enabling easy tracking. This process has already started, hence a few accepted emails on the mailing list. It will probably take a few days, especially given that SID is constantly evolving. Once done, we'll point the build daemons to the official archive. In the meantime, you can just continue to use the Debian-ports archive on your devices, end quote. Debian SID can be used if wanting this official RISC-V support once the package archive is built out, while the Debian 13 release will be out as stable in about two years' time, with this milestone having been missed for the recent Debian 12 debut. Okay, next up, Inkscape 1.3 released as latest open-source software to compete with Adobe Illustrator, and this is from Foronix. Inkscape 1.3 is now available as the newest feature release to this open source software focused on being a vector graphics editor that can rival the likes of Adobe Illustrator. Inkscape 1.3 delivers on better performance improvements to existing features and several new features. Among the new changes in Inkscape 1.3 are the shape builder tool for creating all sorts of different shapes, the new document resources dialog, Adding the search box back to the layers and objects dialog and the PDF import code has been rewritten. There's also been enhanced node deletion logic. The filter editor has been overhauled and a wide range of other improvements. Overall, this SVG-focused open-source vector graphics editor continues advancing quite well and in November will mark 20 years for this wonderful open-source project as an alternative to the likes of the proprietary Adobe Illustrator. Downloads and more details on the Sunday release of Inkscape 1.3 via Inkscape.org. Okay, if there's nothing for that, then we'll move on to LXD maintainership being limited to Canonical employees. This is also from Pharonix. Earlier this month, Canonical asserted control over the LXD project as another step in tightening up control over this container management extension for Linux containers, LXC is now apparently limiting LXD maintainership rights to only canonical employees. LXD developers that continued working on the project when it was independent or kept up with LXD LXC after leaving canonical up until now still had maintainership rights with the project. But as part of canonical asserting more control over the project, it now appears the maintainership is being restricted to canonical employees. Christian Brauner, as a former canonical employee and LXC LXD developer, among other projects, wrote on Mastodon, apparently I'm not a maintainer of LXD anymore and neither is at SG Grabber. So it seems from now on it's Canonical employees only. I'd like to point out that before Canonical moved LXD into GitHub slash Canonical slash LXD maintainership was completely independent of the company. If you went to work somewhere else, you still were a maintainer, as it should be with any well-functioning OSS project. 
Stephanie Graber, as the project leader for Linux containers, recently left Canonical as the other cited by Brawner as having lost LXD maintainer rights. It appears LXD is being tightened up to be a Canonical slash Ubuntu-only affair. At least, though, they are still accepting outside contributions, such as with uh, <clears throat> Graber today, having seen this merge land for providing ZFS dataset delegation support as found in OpenZFS 2.2. I think Stefan would rather have his name pronounced a little bit better. but <clears throat> Sorry about that, Stefan. <laughs> Anyhow, um, I know nothing. It seems like Canonical is doing what Canonical does to make themselves a commercial product. And we've had this discussion in a number of other arenas. Yeah, I, thought, okay, yeah, then. I think we've talked about that nauseam. Google warns again it will start deleting inactive accounts in December from Bleeping Computer. In emails sent over the weekend, Google warned customers again that it would start deleting inactive accounts on December 1st, 2023. The company will only enforce this rule for accounts that haven't been used or signed into within two years, but will first notify the users their accounts are eligible for deletion. Quote, if your account is considered inactive, we will send several reminder emails to both you and your recovery emails, if any have been provided, before we take any action or delete any account content. These reminder emails will go out at least eight months before any action is taken on your account, end quote, Google's email reads. Once a Google account is deleted, the associated Gmail addresses will become ineligible for use in creating a new Google account. The easiest way to keep a Google account active is to log in at least once every two years. As long as you've accessed your Google account within the past two years, it will be considered active and will not be subject to deletion. Additional means to maintain your account's activity status include reading or sending an email, using Google Drive, downloading, plays from the play, downloading apps from the Play Store, using Google Search, and watching YouTube while logged on, sharing photos, or using sign-in with Google with third-party services. The rule also comes with certain exceptions, including Google accounts with YouTube activity, channels, videos, or comments, holding a gift card with a monetary balance that published apps on the Google Play Store. The company first warned customers that it changed its inactive account policies in May when Ruth Crichelli, Google's VP for Product Management, said extended periods of inactivity might indicate that the accounts have been compromised. Quote, this is because forgotten or unattended accounts often rely on old or reused passwords that may have been compromised, haven't had two-factor authentication set up, and received fewer security checks by the user, Crichelli said. Our internal analysis shows abandoned accounts are at least 10, ti 10 times less likely than active accounts to have two-step two verification set up. Once compromised, threat actors can use Google accounts for the wide range of malicious purposes, from identity theft to sending spam or phishing emails. Quote, we want to protect your private information and prevent any unauthorized access to your account, even if you're no longer using our services, end quote. Google warned in the emails sent to Google users over the weekend. However, Google also allows users to download their data using the Google Takeout service, and it provides a feature known as the Inactive Account Manager that helps plan what happens with the account over a specific period of inactivity. Now, I know a lot of people have issues with this, and I don't really understand why, but um, I understand why they would need to get rid of accounts that aren't being used over a long period of time, just the volume of accounts that there are 
I'm sure we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. I'm sure we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. And as I said then as well, you know, the amount of service space they're going to free up because of all the, you know, unused things. It's just, it's just basic housekeeping, really. I don't know why people are getting so annoyed by it, really. Go use your account. Yeah, exactly. And if you don't want to delete it, use it. I'm sure I've created accounts accounts over the years that I'm not using anymore, and I don't remember where they are or what they are, and I sure would like there to be some way of deleting them, you know, so I'm kind of glad they're doing this. Well, there are a lot of people screaming that when Google rolled out Gmail, they said that these accounts would be available free forever, and they didn't say anything about you had to keep it active, but that's a really... Uh, flimsy but then if you're not using it, why are you so annoyed Google? by it? Yeah, they changed their minds, it, okay? It's their business. It is literally their business. Exactly. And it's like, well, if you really want it, use it then, innit? Hmm? I mean, it just seems a little bit I ridiculous. I really don't want it. I'm still forced to use it. <laughs> <laughs> Bill? All right. So, unpacking Google's new dangerous web environment integrity specification uh, from Vivaldi blog by Julian Picalusa. Did I say that right, Moss? I'd say Picalousa. Picalousa, okay. Google seems to love creating specifications that are terrible for the open web. This, uh, okay, let me reiterate, this is a, a blog post by an individual and in no way reflect our opinions. Um, Again, Google seems to love creating specifications that are terrible for the open web, and it feels like it feels like they find a way to create a new one every few months. This time, we have come across some controversy caused by a new web environment integrity spec that Google seems to be working on. At this time, I could not find any official message from Google about this spec, so it is impossible so it is possible that it is just a work of some misguided engineer at the company that has no backing from higher up, but it seems to be work that has gone on for more than a year, and the resulting spec is so toxic to the open web that at this point google needs to at least give some explanation as to how it could go so far this is full of conjecture and opinion um what the web environment what is web environment integrity it is simply dangerous the spec in question which is described at uh and there's a link there for the uh spec is called web environment integrity the idea is as simple as it is dangerous. It would provide websites with an API telling them whether the browser and the platform it is running on that is currently in use is trusted by an authoritative third party called an attester. The details are nebulous, but the goal seems to be to prevent fake interactions with websites of all kinds. While this seems like a noble motivation and the use cases listed seem very reasonable, the solution proposed is absolutely terrible and has already been equated with DRM for websites with all that it implies. It is also interesting to note that the first use case listed is about ensuring that interactions with ads are genuine. 
while this is not problematic on the surface, it contains hints at the idea that Google is willing to use any means of bolstering its advertising platform, regardless of the potential harm to the users of the web. Despite the text uh, mentioning the incredible risk of excluding vendors, read uh, other browsers, it only makes a lukewarm attempt at addressing the issue and ends up with any real solution. So what is the issue? Simply, if an entity has the power of deciding which browsers are, trust, are trusted and which are not, there is no guarantee that they will trust any given browser. Any new browser would, be, would by default not be trusted until they have somehow demonstrated that they are trustworthy to the discretion of the attesters. Also, anyone stuck running on legacy software where the spec is not supported would eventually be excluded from the web. To make matters worse, the primary example given by an attester is Google Play on Android. This means that Google decides which browser is trustworthy on its own platform. I do not see how they can be expected to be impartial. On Windows, they would probably defer to Microsoft via the Windows Store, and on Mac, they would defer, defer to Apple. So we can expect at least Edge and Safari are going to be trusted. Any other browsers will be left to the good graces of those three companies. Of course, you can note one glaring omission in the previous paragraph. What of Linux? Well, that is the big question. Will Linux be completely excluded from the Snaps package repositories? Who knows? You skipped a line, is, Bill. Uh, Will Linux be completely... Start there. As long as this is, I don't think it matters much. Well, he skipped from... Will Linux be completely exclu excluded Will Linux be from completely, browsing the web? Yeah, this, this article is starting to hurt my neck. Um, will Linux be completely excluded from browsing on the web? Or will Canonical become the decider by virtue of controlling the Snaps package repositories? I mean, come on, man. Um, but it gets worse. The spec hints heavily that the aim will ensure that real people are interacting with the website. It does not clarify in any way how it aims to do that. So we are left with some big questions about how it will achieve this. Will behavioral data be used to see if user if the user behaves like in human-like fashion? Will the data be presented to the attesters? Will accessibility tools like uh, that rely on Automating input to the browser cause it to become untrusted. Will it affect extensions? The spec does not currently specify a carve-out for browser modifications and extensions, but those, can, but those can make automating interactions with a website trivial. So either the spec is useless or restrictions will, be, will eventually be applied thereto. It would otherwise be trivial for an attacker to bypass the whole thing. Can we just refuse to implement it? Unfortunately, it's not that simple this time. Any browser choosing not to implement this would not be trusted, and any website choosing to use this API could therefore reject users from those browsers. Google also has ways to drive adoption by websites themselves. 
first, they can easily make all their properties depend on using those features and not being able to use Google websites is a death sentence for most browsers already. Furthermore, they could, they could try to mandate that sites that use Google Ads use this API as well, which makes sense which makes sense since the first goal to prevent fake ads clicks fake ad clicks that would quickly ensure that any browser not supporting the API would be doomed. There is hope. There's an overwhelming likelihood that the EU law will not allow a few companies to have a huge amount of power in de- deciding which browsers are allowed and which are not. There is no doubt that attesters would be under a huge amount of pressure to be as fair as possible. Unfortunately, legislative and judicial machineries tend to be slow, and there is no saying how much damage will be done while governments and judges are examining this. It is allowed to move, if it is allowed to move forward, it will be hard, it will be a hard time for the open web and might affect smaller vendors significantly. It has been long known that Google's dominance of the web browser market gives them potential to become an existential threat to the web with every bad idea they have brought to the table, like flock, topic, and client hints. They have come closer to realizing that potential. Web environment integrity is more of the same, but also a step above the rest in that threat it... in. In the threat it represents, especially since it could be used to encourage Microsoft and Apple to cooperate with Google to restrict competition both in the browser space and operating system space, it is imperative that they be called on that they be called out on this and prevented from moving forward. While our vigilance allows us to notice and push back against all these attempts to undermine the web, the only long-term solution is to get Google to be on an even playing field. Legislation helps there, but so does reducing their market share. Similarly, our voice grows in strength for every Vivaldi user, allowing us to be more effective in these discussions. We hope that users of the web realize this and choose their browsers con- consequently. The fight over the open web to remain open is going to be a long one and there's much at stake. Let us fight together. Okay, so this isn't news. This is conjecture. This is yeah, this is conjecture. This is a way overreaction to Mountain Molehill. Um, isn't it? Yeah. It's clearly it's you know big. I and I was thinking to myself, why are they doing such a big thing about this? You know, something which is you know it, they themselves they themselves have said it could just be you know something misunderstood it could be an engineer doing something odd or whatever you know um no, right. i could so, see i could see where this would be an issue because most people only use you know like the big 3 browsers so um if something like this did get implemented and the big 3 were involved then yeah, maybe with smaller browsers or new browsers, there would be an issue. But this is monopolistic practices and would probably get shot down even in the U.S. sooner or later. But you see, my point is that this isn't something that has been announced. This isn't something that has been, 
you know, put front and center. It's something which is that they themselves say it could just be a, a certain guy or one engineer or whatever. So why the uh, the over the overreaction? Well, not overreaction. Why the reaction? Let's just call it the reaction. Well, I think it's obvious that the person writing this, as he reveals at the end, is a Vivaldi user, and I don't see how anything Vivaldi is doing would uh, get in Google's way. But I mean, maybe it's a, he does. I mean, it is from the Vivaldi blog. Just, um, well, but yeah. but my point is that it's. I think uh, I would agree that it's a way of trying to bring more attention to their browser by you know i wouldn't say manufacturing a problem but by maybe making you know as i said making a mountain of a molehill of a problem so that now well by the way if you want to stay away from all of this stuff we've got a browser why don't you try that that's exactly <laughs> what i was thinking yeah well you know yes. just if you're really worried about it just switch over to gophernet i mean you know th there's advances there all the time they're making it much more like html every day um give it a try and you know see if you feel restricted about how much of the internet you have i yeah. mean i i'd like to make the point that i'm not trying to say that this is a good idea or anything like that it's just I, it's very it's, you know, you know what we were talking earlier about alphas and betas and what some things always seem to be beta. This is like pre-alpha type of thing. You know, it's not even, um, you know, coming out. Um, and so it, it does seem... I don't even know if it's software yet. It's just proposed. Yeah, so, it, it, uh, so as I said, it seems to be a bit of a controversy that's been made so that they can say, well, we've got a better browser that's freedom respecting blah 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 try our browser is really good i say this by the way as a vivaldi user and i quite like vivaldi um but yeah it's it's marketing yeah okay moving forward <clears throat> i found this quite interesting actually chrome os is splitting the browser from the os getting more linuxy well or as somebody else put it on the internet basically a linux distro um so this is from ars technica it looks like Google's uh, long-running project to split up Chrome OS and its Chrome browser will be shipping out to the masses soon. Kevin Tolfels about Chromebooks has spotted flags that turn on the feature by default for Chrome OS 116 and up. 116 is currently in beta and should be live in the stable channel sometime this month. The, pro the project is called Lacros, which Google says stands for Linux and Chrome OS. This will split Chrome OS's Linux OS from the Chrome browser, allowing Google to update each one independently. Google documentation on the project says on Chrome OS, the system UI, uh, window manager, login screen, etc., and the web browser are the same binary. Lacrosse uh, separates this functionality into two binaries, henceforth known as Ash Chrome, system UI, and Lacrosse Chrome, web browser. Part of the project involves sprucing up the Chrome OS OS and Google Docs, saying Lacrosse can be imagined as Linux Chrome with more Wayland support. Oh, okay. Previously, Chrome OS was using a homemade graphics stack called Freon, but now with Wayland, it'll be on the new and normal desktop Linux graphics stack. Google's 2016 move to Freon was at a time when it could have moved from X11 directly to Wayland, but it decided to take the, this custom detour instead. Google says this represents a more Wayland support because Wayland was previously used for Android and Linux apps, but now be used for native Chrome OS graphics too. On the browser side, Chrome OS would stop using the bespoke Chrome browser for Chrome OS and switch to Chrome browser for Linux. Same browser you'd get on Ubuntu uh, would now ship on Chrome OS. In the past, turning on Lacrosse in Chrome OS would show both Chrome browsers, the outgoing Chrome OS one and the new Linux one. 
Lacros has been in development for around two years and can be enabled via Chrome flag. Topher says his 116 build no longer has that flag since it's the default one now. Google hasn't officially confirmed this is happening, but so far the code is headed that way. Users probably won't notice anything, but the feature should make it easier to update Chrome OS and might even extend the lifetime on old Chrome OS devices. They should let Google more directly roll out changes on Chrome OS. Currently, they can be delayed while Google does the extra build work for Chrome OS so the standalone browsers get security fixes first. It's the year of the Linux desktop! Yeah, I mean, we mentioned this... <laughs> I think we mentioned this last show where uh, we said... I think the one last show was we were talking about how Linux is now almost half of the Linux uh, ecosystem. <laughs> right, and how this split-off really does make it a Linux distro, and you might as well just call it that. Yeah, I mean, what they've done is they've uh, kept it as Chrome OS till they've got market share um, because they want because now new users who do use it, or existing users, aren't going to know that it's now basically a Linux distro, they'll just think of it as, oh, this is Chrome OS. So they can leverage having to do less work on it by making it basically just a distro. Um, but now, but they've got the brand recognition. Um, it's kind of like, um, it's kind of like searching the internet. Nobody, let's be honest, nobody says, I'm going to do a Bing search. They say, I'm going to Google it. You know, um, you know, they've got that mind share now, I think. So, um, Swiss it's cows. A, it's a it's a very um, you got to put yeah, take your hat off to them. It's a good way of doing business. It's annoying, but it's a good way of doing it. Ask Jeeves. Oh wow, yeah, oh, Alta man. Vista baby, Alta, <laughs> Alta Vista. Vista. Oh man, I used to love Alta Vista. Yeah, oh man, Lycos search. Lycos search. Oh yeah, man. Hey, even Net young Zero <laughs> Juno. <laughs> Well, if we got nothing on that, nothing else that is on that. Um, six years in, maintainer Derek Wong says goodbye to XFS. This is from Force. Yesterday, Derek Wong, the maintainer of the XFS file system, announced in a patch series that he is calling it quits. And uh, his letter reads, Hi all, I do not choose to continue as maintainer. My final act as maintainer is to write down everything I have been doing as maintainer for the past six years. There are too many demands placed uh, on the maintainer, and the only way to fix this is to delegate the responsibilities. I also wrote down my impressions of the unwritten rules about how to contribute to XFS. The patch set concludes with my nomination for a new release manager to keep things running in the interim. Testing and triage, community management, and LTS maintenance are all open positions. This is an extraordinary way to destroy everything. Enjoy! Comments and questions are, as always, welcome. For nearly 12 years, Wong's day job has been as a self-proclaimed kernel hacker at Oracle where many of his duties have revolved around XFS, a high-performance 64-bit journaling file system created by Silicon Graphics in 1993. Before that, he spent eight years at IBM as an open sourcer, quote, where he wrote kernel code, mostly. XFS was ported to the Linux kernel in 2001, and in 2002, Gen2 became the first Linux distro to make it available to its users as an option. 
These days, it's supported by most Linux, Linux distros, and since June 2014, it's been the default file system in Red Hat's Red Hat Linux, Red Hat Enterprise Linux, starting with the release of Rails 7. Like many maintainers who walked away from important but unsexy projects in recent years, Wong cited burnout caused by overwork as a major reason for his decision to quit. And he goes on to write, I burned out years ago trying to juggle the roles of senior developer, reviewer, tester, triager, crappily, release manager, and at times, manager liaison. There's enough work here in the one subsystem for a team of 20 FT. Full-time. Full-time, okay. But instead, we're squeezed to half that. I thought if I could hold on just a bit longer, I could help maintain the focus on long-term development to improve the experience for users. I was wrong. Nowadays, people working on XFS seem to spend most of their time on distro kernel backports and dealing with AI-generated corner case bug reports that aren't user reports. Reviewing has become a nightmare of sitting through under documented kernel code trying to decide if this new feature will break all other features. Getting reviews is an unpleasant process of negotiating with demands for other cl- or for, for demands for further cleanups, trying to figure out if a review comment is based on experience or unfamiliarity, and wondering if the silence means anything. Wong has recommended Shandan Babu who for the last two years has been a XFS file system developer at Oracle as his replacement. And this sounds so much like work. It kind of hurts. <laughs> kind of hard to get through, huh? You know, you can't, I can't help but sympathize in cases like this. You know, it's uh it's real hard when you're working on something that's, it doesn't matter how important it is. If it's not, the new sexy thing like AI or whatever, you know, it's just not going to get, you're not going to get any respect for it um, or help. So, and that's the news. That's right. Moving on to security and privacy. Nobody had grabbed this one, so I did. Zenbleed, a new flaw in AMD's N2 processors, puts encryption keys and passwords at risk. From the Hacker News via Londoner on July 25th. A new security vulnerability has been discovered in AMD's Zen 2 architecture-based processors that could be exploited to extract sensitive data such as encryption keys and passwords. Discovered by Google Project Zero researcher Tavis Ormandy, the flaw, codenamed Zenbleed and tracked as CVE-2023-20593 with a CVSS score of 6.5, allows data exfiltration at the rate of 30 kilobytes per core per second. The issue is part of a broader category of weaknesses called speculative execution attacks, in which the optimization technique widely used in modern CPUs is abused to access cryptographic keys from CPU registers. Quote, under specific microarchitectural circumstances, a register in Zen 2 CPUs may not be written, correct, written to zero correctly, end quote, AMD explained in an advisory. 
This may cause data from another process and or thread to be stored in the YMM register, which may allow an attacker to potentially access sensitive information. Web infrastructure company Cloudflare noted that the attack could even be carried out remotely through JavaScript on a website, thereby obviating the need for physical access to the computer or server. Quote, vectorized operations can be executed with great efficiency using the YMM registers, end quote, Cloudflare reg- researchers Derek Chamorro and Ignat Korchagin said. Quote, applications that process large amounts of data stand to gain significantly from them, but they are increasingly the focus of malicious activity, end quote. Quote, this attack works by manipulating register files to force a mispredicted command. Since the register file is shared by all, pro- all the processes running on the same physical core, this exploit can be used to eavesdrop on even the most fundamental system operations by monitoring the data being transferred between the CPU and the rest of the computer, end quote. They added, while there is no evidence of the bug being exploited in the wild, it's essential that the microcode updates are applied to mitigate potential risk as and when they become available through original equipment manufacturers, OEMs. Update, a fix for this vulnerability is on the way. According to an article linked in the show notes by Pharonix, an optimal fix is running the latest AMD processor family 17th microcode, 17H microcode. The Linux kernel has also just received a patch for this Zenbleed vulnerability for older AMD CPUs. Thanks to Dale Miracle for bringing this to our attention. What's interesting is that the first article states this can't be patched until later this year, and the Pharonix article, written a day earlier, states it has already been fixed. So there's a tempest in a teacup for you. No further comments. We will end our security updates and move into our bi-weekly wanderings. First up, me. Well, um, I had some time off, but um, I was in some pain from my lower back and my uh, hip, my leg. So I did a lot of things that didn't require a lot of moving around for a while. I'd like to also say that it's, you know, right now, if I look at the weather in the area that I'm in, it's um, 104 degrees, but it feels like 116. And that's been pretty common for the last two weeks. I had some 3D printing fun, of course. Um, I made a Russian nesting maze for my son for Christmas. Uh, It's a bit complicated, but I did enjoy putting it together and taking it apart a couple of times. We are planning on putting something in it as well. There are four layers that get printed, and they seem to get progressively harder to traverse. And the thing looks solid when you put it all the way together. I may print it in another color later on. Um... I also was trying to print him a keychain of a bunny with a knife, as odd as that sounds. Uh, The prints came out okay, but I'm working on the settings to see what I can improve. Um, I'm thinking that I'll need to lower the temperature a little and slow the print down even more. Uh, I already went from 120 millimeters per second to 75, and that showed some minor improvements. I also tried a raft again because the feet were uneven. Uh, but I had a problem removing them from the raft. Um, I was using tree supports, and I think it may still be better than regular support for removal, but I think that I'll change the overhang angle from 63 to 45 and see if that smooths out some of the rougher parts. Now, granted, it didn't, but there's reasons for that. Um, I'm also working on printing out a wrist brace 
which I find is an interesting print since you print it with no top and no bottom, um, but more walls to fill in the supports. I have some foam that should work for the padding, and I think I have some nylon strapping that'll do the job and some Velcro if I can find it. Now, the first one I printed, the infill was too weak. I, I looked at others, and I may try this one again, but I'm not sure what would be the best way to proceed. Probably increasing the width of the individual infill lines would help a lot. Um, <clears throat> well, that's what I was going to do. Um, my 3D printer stopped printing. It would start a print and then start printing in midair and would grind the filament. Uh, I took apart the hot end and saw that the PTFE tubing was clogged and there was a bit of seepage around it. Uh, I cut the end of the tube and put it all the way back together, only to have it happen again. I'm getting some kind of heat creep here. Uh, maybe I put it back together wrong and there was just some seepage around it. But um, uh, maybe I should also reduce my retraction. Yes, I did replace the nozzle. Uh, I tried that before I took it apart the first time. Uh, I'm going to try and take it apart and put it back together one more time. And if that doesn't work, um, I'm going to replace the entire assembly again. The entire extruder shroud, the both fans, everything. Maybe this time I'll put on the uh, quick connectors so I no longer have to take the thing all the way apart to get, you know, everything replaced. Um, Money pit much? Well, it's only a $30 fix. Uh, on a $200 machine, that's not that big a deal. Plus, I can use the extra parts for other projects. What I have to assume now is either it's just so ungodly hot in my garage that, you know, it's causing this heat seepage upwards, which I guess is possible being up over 100 degrees like that. But um, the, the only other thing that I can assume is that the fan is just not spinning as fast as it should be and, and cooling that um, the uh, extruder um, at the, the higher up portions where the PTFE tubing is. I mean, yeah. And that uh, the last one lasted six months, and I don't know how many prints I've done since then, but it's it's been a lot, so... I'm not complaining about uh, that piece dying. It is in a really hot environment. Now, uh, but yeah, 3D printing is a bit of a money pit. Now, my van went boom. Um, my wife was driving when it started overheating. She was able to get the vehicle home, thankfully. And I was able to find the quick release connector that had popped on the coolant line leading into the engine. It exploded. Um, I did have to consult with some of my uh, fellow Mintcast hosts to make sure that I was right about what it was. But in the end, I just removed the quick release connector and hooked the hose up straight. So that one was a zero cost fix. Uh, besides, I think the clamp is just as quick as the quick release and it's much less annoying trying to get both of those little quick release things to push in at exactly the same time so you can pop the thing out or just unscrewing it. I mean, unscrewing it is a lot easier. Um, I say zero cost, but then, you know, after that, uh, I did the right thing and, and flushed the coolant system because it was looking a little rough. And then I put the proper coolant water mixture in there, which did end up costing around $40. Um, these things strangely kept happening every time I, I started doing the research for today's innards for this show. So yeah, um, and then, you know, the next day after that happened, it happened again. Um, I, I sat down to start writing and I got a call from Jackie, my wife, that the van had done it again. This time it was 20 minutes away at a gas station. So I grabbed my tools and got in my car and drove over there to see what had happened. 
This time, a Y coupler, also for the coolant system, had popped and all the coolant had leaked out. Um, it was quite a bit more work to get this one out as the tubing had fused to the coupler and the coupler had deteriorated. Um, like, as I was pulling it apart, it just fell apart while I was trying to get the, uh, the tubing off. It looks like my last fix was still working uh, good, but a new part had broken. So yeah, the, the, the part that I had switched over before that was still fine, it was still maintaining pressure, just another piece of plastic rotted and fell apart. Uh, the part that fell apart more, it just kept falling apart as I was trying to remove the tube from the connector. I ended up cutting the hoses and was able to properly remove the other piece from um, where it goes into the engine um, and got it off the rotted connector. I had Jackie go get the new part while I was taking it all the way apart, and thankfully the parts store had one on hand. Uh, talking to the clerk, we were the fourth person that day to have a coolant system problem of some kind due to this unbearable heat. Uh, this time I just put water in because I want to make sure that there is not going to be another problem in the same system. Um, I still have some more uh, unmixed coolant left over, and if the thing survives a week, I'll probably do the correct thing again and, and flush it and then fill it up properly. Uh, later, I sat down again to fill out more show notes, and I ended up getting a call from our, our, our lawyer regarding the things that we are currently involved in uh, with my daughter in the school that I'm not able to speak about other than to say that we may have come to an agreement. That took several hours of time discussing things with the lawyer. Hopefully, I'm able to get the show notes done. And, you know, I mostly was to my satisfaction. Also, um, my dad came to visit on Friday. But, um, I, you know, I was able to get everything written. He was here with me for some of it. Um, I did miss out on the lug cast on Friday. But I told those guys that that might happen with my dad in town. I did ask my dad if he wanted to join me on the podcast. But he was not interested. He said it wasn't his thing. So I just missed the show and hung out with him. Um, <clears throat> we we rely on you for so much around here, oh, Joe. Oh, well, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> I try. Also, my son is um, going to get his first actually working cell phone instead of just a Wi-Fi phone. Um, that should be here on Tuesday. I will let you guys know how that goes. He ended up getting, um, one of the, the Motorola edges, which is a lower cost phone, but it's supposed to be a relatively decent one. It was, for the, for me, it was between that and the Nord N300, but I still think I can pick up a, a, a Nord 300 5G, um, but with a trade in on another phone. And I might do that just to have a backup phone for Jojo in case he breaks the one he currently has. And that's that's it for me. Well, I really don't have much to report this week because of my inability to do much of anything productive with regards to tech. Uh, while I was off work uh, the week before last for the truck show, my truck was being dismantled. My semi-truck, that is. Uh, was being dismantled and sent off to two different specialty shops to get various things done. I will get my truck back tomorrow, Monday, as we record this episode. Uh, but like I said, I've had, I've been without it for two weeks. The truck I've been using uh, these last couple of weeks didn't have a usable workspace for me to do anything on my laptop. So it meant any projects that I've been planning would have to be put on the back burner. Um, 
I would like to say that I'm pleased so far with uh, Mint 21.2. It seems as though Flatpak is working a little bit better than in previous releases, although the Audacity Flatpak is, while better, still requiring you to install Flat Seal and change a setting removing the Pipewire file association. Um, maddening. But there you go. From what I can tell, it only seems to be a problem with Mint. I'm considering moving to LMDE when version 6 releases to get more up-to-date packages. That way I don't have to use Flatpak for Audacity, uh, at least for the time being. I'm somewhat conflicted on the topic. In the past, I've used Arch, which dissolves all these problems. Uh, yeah, I use Arch, by the way. Bill? I haven't yeah. seen a problem with the Audacity flat pack, or if I have, I'm not recognizing that it's a problem and that I need to fix it. So what are we talking about here with flat seal and all that? Okay, so it just was not launching for me. And when I Googled the uh when I Googled the problem, it was just giving me the uh the little dialogue saying Audacity is not launching and it gives you the option to either wait or kill the process. And when I Googled it, it said, go to flat seal and remove, you go under file system. There's under other files, there's a, uh, there's an association to a pipe wire library or something you need to remove. And then it started working. Well, that's so weird. Know. I'm not having the problem, but that's okay. Continue. Anyway. Um, but are I, are you using the flat pack? I thought you were using the repo version. No, I've been using flat pack. I've been complaining about the fact I don't have the uh, scroll bar on the bottom, and you keep saying, "Well, all you have to do is close it and open it again." And I do that, and I don't have anything different. So, well, you have to zoom in first, make it to where it needs a a uh, vertical scroll or horizontal scroll bar, and then unmaximize it, and then remaximize mm. it, and it shows up. Well, anyhow, I'm struggling without that, but go ahead. Yeah, I and more on that in a minute. Um, yeah, like I said, I'm somewhat conflicted on the topic, and Arch always solved these problems for me. Um, okay, so with regards to Audacity, the project continues to be a thorn in my side. I use the flat pack for now. I've even cowboy compiled it on Mint so as to get the most up-to-date version, as there is new features that make editing a bit easier and i'm digging the new sqlite database method they use to store the projects now there's still nagging cringeworthy problems such as the fact that the horizontal scroll bar doesn't appear until you unmaximize and remaximize the window and that is just unacceptable the audacity team is aware of the problem but it doesn't seem to be as though there's a solution in sight. They keep releasing iterative updates, but they seem to be more interested in adding features than fixing some glaring problems like this. And that is a glaring problem. Um, I keep hearing about a rebase from the current WX Widgets Toolkit to something else. Some say QT, others say it's something like News Toolkit. I've not seen anything in any official audacity communication to confirm either of those claims at this point the only th uh thing keeping me on audacity is the fact that i haven't had time to learn ardor or uh, reaper 
I've added them on Twitter and Facebook, dis- displaying my discontent. My discontent, and yeah, obviously I've already the the bug reports I've added to them. There, hundreds of people have filed the same bug. I really hope uh, something comes of it soon. Uh, I really want darling FOSS projects like this to be worth taking seriously. I advocate th- for them to normal people, but it gets hard to do when they don't get the basic things right. You know. Anyway, my hope for the future is still intact. Because if you go back to the repo versions, or, or even I think it's uh, version 3.2, I think, uh, the horizontal scroll bar, works just fine. Um, but if you are using a distribution that's using the up-to-date version or you're using Flatpak or you're downloading the app image, which, by the way, is their officially supported uh, method of running the application, this problem exists in every single one of those. And it's not it's not Mint's fault, as far as I can tell, because I've ran it on Fedora and uh, Arch as well, and the exact same problem persists. One thing I've not tried is to see if Windows has this problem because that would be sacrilege. If, if the Windows version worked, yeah. I mean, obviously Windows is going to have more users, so I can see why you would uh, you would focus more attention on that. But yeah, focus more attention on it, but don't just completely abandon your uh, Linux user base because you have people like us that are making this content and uh, we like to use these FOSS projects because it's, it's part of our, it's part of our thing, you know, and if you make changes that break fundamental ways that the application works, then don't release that update. I don't, I don't know why that's so complicated, but uh, you know, it, it's, it's irritated me quite a bit. And I think this problem with the scroll bar has been going on for about a year now, and um, which feels to me like way too long. Now I'm not a developer, you know. I'm just, I'm just a an irritated, um, oh, entitled user, I suppose. But at some point, you is it entitlement anymore when it just goes on and on and on, and you're you're adding other things and you're fixing other things, but you're not fixing this, you know? I don't know. But that so ends my rant. How about you, Moss? Okay, I've spent quite a bit of time getting acclimated to my new smart guitar. I'm getting to like it. It does not quite feel like a guitar, but it almost looks and sounds like one. Uh, They apparently made a number of compromises that seem to have worked. You just have to get used to the fact that there are compromises. I got a good price, $426 rather than the $899.99 list price. Today you can buy it on Amazon for $599.99, but that's mostly because they just came out with the second generation model. The next G2 is $899.99 today, but it also comes with a charger and stand and an effects box, so it's got at least $200 more stuff on it. I got all my renewal paperwork done almost in time, apparently not in time for my phone appointment as they did not call me at the appointed time. This means I need to call them on Monday and say, hey, did you get my paperwork and when's when's my new appointment? (sighs) What fun. My father's wife passed. Yeah. Let's get this right. My wife's father passed away August 1st of lung cancer at age 87. I never got to meet him. 
I will be missing the next episode as I will be off singing in a friend's house in South Carolina. I will make the streamcast. I have highlighted that so members of the team can see that, yes, indeed, I did say this, and they will not say, where the hell are you, uh, when I don't show up for the next show. Oh, it's going to happen, Moss. <laughs> I can promise you. Well, I will say, read the show notes. Sorry to hear about your father-in-law. <laughs> yeah, me, yes. yeah, me too. Sorry yeah, to we, are, we are now both orphans. Uh, all of our parents are gone. And that's a hard thing to deal with. It was my... Uh, Anyhow, that's that's all I can talk about right now. Let, let's move on to Majid. Yeah, <clears throat> just uh, before I start my wanderings. Uh, yeah, firstly, again, I was no, sorry for your loss. My it's, It was the 20th anniversary of my um, father's passing uh, about two weeks ago now. And um, yeah, not fun. Anyway, uh, well, it says something about how broken up I was about it that I got the words backwards. Yeah, I know, <laughs> I know. <laughs> anyway, so my wanderings. Uh, so the main biggest thing is that I went abroad. I went on holiday. Uh, went to Marrakesh in Morocco. Uh, it's a place I've been planning to go for a long time, but never managed to. Some something would come in, you know, in the way. Did we lose them? We pandemic. lost them. Huh? I can hear. You. I, I was worried it was me that got lost because I still am having problems with Comcast. No, uh, you, hello. I was thinking. Oh, we couldn't hear you. Oh, okay. It's All right. So start from, start from the top from Winter Broad. Okay. You're not downloading while you're doing this, are no. you? No, I'm not. Okay. So, okay. Um, yes. Uh, biggest thing I did was I went abroad. I went to Marrakesh in Morocco, in North Africa. It was a place I've been planning on going. Oh, that's hilarious! He starts again, <laughs> and, and and it just stops. Majid, you're just not supposed to talk about Marrakesh. Yeah. Evidently, oh. whatever happens, in- there is evil forces afoot with this episode. I, I, okay, I have no idea why. Okay, okay hold on. Once more from the top. So, in my wanderings, I went abroad. I went to Marrakesh in Morocco, a place that I'd been planning on going for a very long time, but never managed to. Um, you know, global pandemics and all that sort of jazz. Anyway, a window came up where me and my sons could go. It was a very good holiday, really enjoyed. Saw a lot of historical sites, participated in the madness of the local bazaar with its snake charmers and, you know, um, very pushy uh, salesmen. Uh, We went on a trek to the Atlas Mountains. Uh, We rode a camel in the desert. we even did uh, some quad biking. Um, it wasn't too expensive, um, considering I'd only booked it three weeks earlier. Uh, if I'd planned it better, I probably would have got it hot. It was good spending time with my boys too. It was bloody hot. I mean, now I'm, you know, at the moment in Britain, you know, the uh, it feels more like February rather than August. Um, and so, and, you know, you keep hearing about all these heat waves in other parts of the world. Well, it was hot. Um, it was a, probably about 105 Fahrenheit, 43 degrees Celsius. And unlike many of the Gulf countries where, um, yet, you know, AC isn't ubiquitous. It isn't like, you know, people who've been to like Dubai or Doha or Saudi, you know, you go from one air-conditioned place to another air-conditioned place and the only bit you feel the heat is the bit when you walk maybe from your, I don't know, your hotel to your, you know, to well, your car or whatever. Um, here it was not like that. Um, um, my experience in Doha was a little bit different, but I was living in his tent. 
Okay, okay, that's slightly different, I suppose. Okay, fair enough. Um, so uh, we kind of became a little bit Middle Eastern, actually, in the sense that we followed that routine of you get up early in the morning, you, you know, go out for breakfast, do a bit of exploring, this, that, and the other. And then when the heat gets really hot, you, uh, you know, you get back, you know, you go back, have a bit of a nap, siesta, and then uh, uh, come back out in the evening again. I've been doing that on um, my vacation. Yeah. Um. I mean, uh, yeah, it was it was such a good trip. No. I'm already planning another trip back. I do have a question about the uh, quad biking because it is something that I have been interested in. But the uh, the cost of quad bikes here is absolutely insane, um, mm-hmm. like four thousand dollars for one of them. Um, mm-hmm. So these were recumbent uh, quads. Uh, okay, so I don't know a huge amount about quad biking. Uh, these were basically uh, like yeah, like scooters with um four wheels basically is what it was you know driving it was like oh you were you were on a quad so uh, okay yeah. you were four wheeling yeah four, four, yes. four wheeling is different than quad biking uh quad, okay. quad biking um at least here implies a uh like a recumbent pedal bike with four oh, okay. wheels no 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 it wasn't you you uh, no, you, no, this... you were four wheeling which is which is what it would be called here when you have a motorized um four wheeler okay yeah, so that's what that's what it was. Okay, an ATV. Um, yeah, um, and um, I mean, it, it, it was good fun. My son, my middle one, um, has all the brashness of a teenager and managed to smack into a wall. Oh yeah, and in, yeah, um, which kind of put the uh, a bit of a dampener on things. <sighs> um, we had quite a few funny anecdotes. Look, I, I, that I... lad, that lad, he can pull wherever he is, man. Every it seemed that every woman he met liked him. Do you know what I mean? Even when he was, you know, c- coming off a bike, you know, into a wall, he still manages to find you know a woman going, "Are you okay there? Are you all right?" You know. <laughs> no, I, 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 I had, a, had a three wheeler as a teenager, and I can't tell you the number of times I either crashed it, flipped it over backwards, flipped it up mm-hmm. on its side, you name it. But I was not the brightest teenager on the planet, so yeah. There's that. Uh, uh, the food was also really good. We stayed in this kind of, um, it's called a Riyadh. Uh, so it's basically like an old house, which is, you know has multiple rooms, and each room has been turned into kind of like um, a hotel room, as it were. You say Riyadh, um, and I think Riyadh. Uh, yeah, I know. It, it, it's the same word, um, but obviously they're referring it to something else, you know, rather than the capital city of Saudi Arabia. Um and uh yeah linguistically it means garden so it's a yeah so it, it was a so it was nice it had a kind of homely feel to it as well it was like there was this old widow who owned it and you know it was like, almost like an airbnb more than a, a hotel really um yeah i really really enjoyed it yeah coming back to work isn't isn't fun is it really after that um as much as i needed to switch off from work i couldn't completely um I did take my work phone with me just in case there are any important messages. I know this is not a good thing to do. You're on holiday, you should switch off, and but uh, that's the way it is. But, you know, sometimes there's one or two things that, you know, you can sort out there and then, which, you know, makes just life easier for everybody, if you know what I mean. Um, so, for, uh, so there was one message that I got. Uh, basically, our hospital department website, um, it seems that our education department hadn't paid the web hosting fees. And this meant it was going to get shut down. This was especially as a problem as we've had a new uh, influx of doctors rotating to us. And we were, you know, directing them to the website for all the extra information that they might need to know. 
So um, thankfully, I was able to sort it out quickly, uh, even from over there. Um, if anybody's interested, it's called wolvesgas.org.uk. It's a bit bare at the minute, but hey. The Mint experiment continues. Um, I've added U-Launcher to my setup as I was missing the GNOME Universal Search or the KDE Runner uh, functionality. It's not as good, but it's usable. Machine is really quick. It's lightning fast. I mean, you know, this, I mean, it's not a slouch of a machine, but still, I mean, it had Kubuntu on it before and I thought it was good on that. Um, it is with much shame that I have to admit that I still keep a Windows installation on my main machine. Um, this is because of my use of OneNote for taking notes for my work and also for my Islamic lessons. Generally, the services, whether FOSS or proprietary I use, are uh, OS agnostic. You know, some things I can use on Android, Linux, Windows, recently Macs. So whether it's music streaming, such as Spotify, messaging like Telegram, Office, LibreOffice, etc., you know, you kind of get the idea. Well, I hate to be the one to tell you this, but you can use OneNote on Linux. I'll get to that. Okay. This was always because of my use of Android and Linux and to avoid vendor lock-in. OneNote has been the holdout. It works great with Stylus Input and integrates with all different OSs. Uh, yes, you can get it on Linux. Um, the Stylus support on Linux isn't as good. Um, and um, the next thing was, was, was the problem. So this week, well, actually, it's going to be next week, actually, now, was going to be my annual appraisal, uh, which is, you know, we have an annual kind of review, as it were, of what you've done during the year and whatever, and you haven't killed anyone and stuff. So we do this like once a year in the NHS. And I realized that I couldn't convert my OneNote notes into a PDF unless I had the desktop client of it. The web app doesn't allow export to PDF. The uh, apps that you get for Linux are basically wrappers around the the web app. So I had to fire up the Windows partition or a machine to do it. So now the question is, what is a cross-platform replacement for OneNote that works well with pen input on Linux? Any ideas? Let me know. Evernote? It has its so, limitations. Yeah, it has quite a few limits. There's only a certain number of devices you can use it on for a free account and stuff like that. Which I did try it. It no, nah, I didn't get on with it. Um, but yeah, if anybody wants to help me, my predicament, please contact me. Similarly, I've used the Mega Cloud service because of the way that it works well cross-platform. I know Moss thinks it's dodgy, and you're probably right, Moss. I'm not the one that thinks it's dodgy. It's founder Kim dot com is the one that thinks it's dodgy because he got bought out by some Chinese investors, and he, he says they've done all kinds of things to it on the back end. Anywho, recently though, I've been getting quite a lot of sync errors, especially on my uh, Linux boxes. I only have 20 gig of space on there. The, uh, the reason I was using it was it, it seemed to work again quite well on Android, on, on Linux, on Windows machine, even Ma the MacBook I've got. You know, it, uh, it worked well on iOS when I had an iPad for a while. Um, so... But yeah, especially with the synchronizing errors happening on my Linux boxes and the fact that I do have work stuff on there, I need to think of where to move on to. But to what exactly? Uh, Google Drive. I have Google Drive. I pay for it. Uh, I've got 100 gig uh, um, with them. But I know there's like GNOME integration, but it doesn't seem to have, doesn't seem to actually seem to have a proper Linux client, at least, at least not that I've found properly anyway. I have an older OneDrive. 
uh, grandfathered plan, which has about 50 gig on it. But using OneDrive on Linux seems to be a bit stupid, if not wrong, um, and seems a bit counterproductive. I know people here are going to mention Nextcloud, but how well does it work cross-platform? I only ever used it on Linux and Android. Dropbox, ironically, used to have a really good, really good Linux integration, but the free storage is rubbish, and so I'd need to pay for storage. And actually, even more annoying than the storage is there's a device limit. You can only have four devices uh, on your account, and that's what that's what was the last straw for me for Dropbox. Mine too. Well, back in the day, I was big big on Dropbox just because how easy it was to set up, and you could use mm -hmm. it on multiple machines. And then they did the exact same thing that Evernote eventually ended up doing. And in order to get you to pay, they limited you to I think three machines, three three or mm. four. And and no, no, you're not forcing me to pay. Yeah. And and they're not cheap either. I mean, say whatever you want about Google. It's two bucks a month for their 100 gig. You know, yes, uh, the cheapest tier on uh, Dropbox is 10 bucks a month. Yes, you get two terabytes, but it's 10 bucks a month. Right. And, you know. Right. Well, I, I use Box.com, which has the most free storage of everything, uh, but it does not have a Linux client, and they've been taking crap about that for a long time it works fine in the browser well, if you were an uh, early adopt but again if you want anything more you have to pay a not very appropriate sum for for the amount more you get if you if you were uh, an early adopter of dropbox then um they offered various like add-ons to get more free lifetime storage like um if you had friends that joined and they joined using yeah, your yeah. link or if you had specific devices they would add x number of space for x amount of time and different so i, I go ahead i was gonna say i do, the, the space wise isn't actually a problem i i do have that kind of thing and i've I've probably got about 15 gig, maybe something like that. Might even be 20, actually. I can't remember. But it was the device limitation that was the problem. Um, I mean, you could argue it's a good way of compartmentalizing life. I've only, if I've only got my work stuff on my work Dropbox, on my work phone. But um, Let me ask you this. How, how much space do you think you need? So that's a good question. I don't think I'd actually need more than... 20 gig i don't think so this is a 256 gig yeah thumb drive that you can plug in the back I of and make it into Pi an x cloud client set and make it in the next cloud and i can tell you firsthand that the that the it is cross-platform as it gets the the tooling is identical on whatever operating system you're using um and the android client is perfectly good and it works really well syncing all your stuff so i you could so actually uh, i do have a bit of a, a postscript to this because i'd written all of this yesterday uh right. so today i decided i'll try next cloud okay um so i was eyeing up whether to uh do a self-host or just get a free uh server account you know there's there they have their own servers around that you can uh, uh, get onto. And I thought, let me let me just because I'm just trying this out. Let me try a known server first. Try it out, and if I like it, I can either migrate to a self-hosted solution or just spin up another, you know, another instance and do it. As you said, you know, I did have this plan once in a while of 
the next cloud on my Raspberry Pi. Um, anyway, I signed, uh, sign up was, was really easy. A few minutes later, I had it up and running on this mint box with the desktop client installed. So I thought I'll just put it on my other uh, devices as well. Uh, put it on my Android phone, no issues there. So next to put it on my main laptop, which is currently on Ubuntu 23.04. So when you go to get the next kind of desktop client, it's an app image. Um, and I'm sure there's flat packs and snaps out there, but on the Mint machine, I've been able to install the app image easily. Uh, not so Ubuntu. It seemed I needed Fuse 3. I went to download from the repos. In installing it, I basically balked my system. No file manager, no flat pack, and when I went to reboot, wouldn't boot. Brilliant. So I went back to this Mint box, only to find that my lovely wife had unplugged it earlier whilst I was updating it to do some hoovering. So now it too doesn't boot. I have no idea actually how I'm going to participate today. I managed to get the Mint box working about 20 minutes before we got um, um, <laughs> before the podcast started. Which now the interesting. Yes, always do your new projects 20 minutes before the show. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, yes. yeah, it wasn't really well it was organized, but the, it, it did actually make a point to me that if I did have, so I have got my Raspberry Pi in this room and I have got, you know, uh, as I said, if I was going to use it as a server, I'd be using it here. But, I've, you know, if, if people come in and start unplugging and stuff like that, then, you know, without me even realizing. It's, it's got to be put somewhere where it's or, not going to get unplugged. Or you need yeah, to um, build your own UPS. <clears throat> but uh, yeah, I think that will be the yeah. It's as you said, it's got to be somewhere where they're not going to uh, unplug it by accident. <sighs> anyway, or you could tell everybody don't unplug. Yeah, it. as if anybody listens to me in this house. Or mate. put it somewhere where you plug it in. You couldn't unplug my stuff if you wanted to with this desk sitting in front of it. Just put something big and heavy in front of it. Yeah. Sort yeah. Of. Well, anyway, so I think that's what I'll do. Next, I'll actually set up the next cloud. I've, I've I even bought a hundred twenty eight gig memory stick specifically for the Pi four hundred so that I could do that. I just never got around to doing it. See, we'll we'll make this a project. We'll we're gonna stand up, uh, tail scale in front of it. That way you can access it from outside of your house, and either that or a dynamic DNS. That way you've got your own uh, host name that you can connect to it. Mm -hmm. Either way. Yeah. Is it is, um, is it easiest to use Ubuntu server and then snap the snap install the next cloud? Is that the easiest way? Yeah, I mean it's the easiest way, but it's not. It's if you're gonna have all of your data on the exact same drive as the operating system, yeah, because it puts everything in slash far slash snap slash next cloud slash snap slash data or something like that. It's buried in your var directory, and you can do some trickery to put it somewhere else with some bind mounts or something like that, but it's it's a or, whole lot of messing about. You can install bare bones and just put in your own lamp stack. That's exactly what we use here on the show, is the bare bones lamp stack. That's It's a good learning process because it's similar to the... It's the same process you would use if you were going to install a uh, WordPress instance bare bones. You know. The second easiest option is the Docker all-in-one image that is uh linked on the nextcloud website and that is pretty pretty close if you are familiar with and comfortable working with docker which i've said it before it's it's worth learning and actually i think you get some performance benefits over the snap by using the Just docker never version. use docker before don't really yeah. have the ability to update 
You guys say so many funny <laughs> words. <laughs> um, anyway, I bet yeah. I, I think yeah, I think a... keep going on, isn't it, Moss? <laughs> okay. Um, so, atypical anesthetist is my handle over across all the socials and stuff like that, and I still think it's a fantastic name. Of course, I am slightly biased when I say that. But even I have to admit that it's a bit hard to spell and often hard to say, especially if you've not put your teeth in, Moss, um, and often too long for social media handles. So I'm thinking of a bit of a rebrand. A squared, you know, A with the two above, uh, or maybe just, you know, um, it's all spelled out, A squared, you know. Alcoholics Anonymous. Good point. <laughs> Good point. Good point. Back to the drawing yeah. board. But I mean, but who writes a? Thank, thank you who, for that, who Moss. Writes, or there, there's also a, uh, there's also the a dot a that Alistair Crowley used or uh, Argentum something or other. Yeah. I mean, but who writes a two though? Nobody writes a two, do they? Alcoholics Anonymous do not call themselves a two, do they? A two brute. Yes, brute. Um, okay, fine. Okay, while so while all these guys have been pissing on my parade. Um, Speaking of my Islamic lessons, I've actually completed a work with my teacher, which now gives me a chain of authority to teach that. Going back to the 8th century, which I thought was a bit of an achievement, actually. I was quite impressed with myself then. Um, it's a bit of a complicated thing. I mean, if you really want me to, I can explain it. But there's this idea that if you sit with a traditional teacher, he has to have been taught by somebody and by somebody, and that needs to all be recorded. And so you have this chain of authority going back. It's it's supposed to stop the kind of um, what we have nowadays, which is kind of internet shakes and stuff like that, TikTok influences, lingual out all drift. Sorts of nonsense. Lingual drift. Say what? Lingual drift. Okay, I'm gonna have to Google that. Uh, language. Right. Don't worry about language it, changes over time. <laughs> yeah, language changes over time. True. Um, and uh, yeah, final thing. Uh, had my 20th wedding anniversary. So I did something very predictable and bought my wife some jewellery, which always works. Uh, she was insistent on buying something for me and she thought I'd want some tech, which I do, but I chop and change it so much with buying and selling. It didn't seem like a suitable type of gift. You know, it was the 20th wedding anniversary. It wants to be a bit more permanent. So um, in my younger days, I used to be into watches, you know, before smartwatches were a thing. You know, um, so I, she bought me my first Swiss watch. Uh, it's just a Tissot uh, PRX Powermatic 80. Nothing too fancy, nothing like, you know, thousands of pounds or dollars or whatever. But as I said, it's the first Swiss watch I've had. It feels quite, it feels more substantial uh, than any tech that I might get, which I'll then just move on from very quickly. So that is my wanderings. And that is Our Wanderings. This Linux Innards, we are going to be discussing Kevin Mitnick. Mostly I'm going to be talking about his life and times. Um, he was born August 6th, 1963. He recently passed away on July 16th, 2023. Um, as some of you may know, he died from uh, pancreatic cancer. Um, I've been hearing about Kevin for a large portion of my life, and I wanted to show you all a bit about his life. Um, 
I remember being in high school and hearing about the Free Kevin movement because he was being held without trial and was left there for years without any kind of movement. Um, mostly he was held there and he was completely even denied a bail hearing. And that's mostly what people were, were talking about. And the extreme amount of punishment that he got when there weren't any damages. Now, some of this came from his book and some of it came from various articles and also from Wikipedia. Now, I noticed that many of the articles and even Wikipedia had a lot of the timings off or were so truncated that they really didn't tell the whole truth. Uh, so some of the items in this article may be out of order or not quite correct. Um, I did try to bring everything together as best as I could, but understand that, you know, I'm an outsider looking in and I'm trying to get it as close as I can without, you know, making a six hour speech. Um, he wrote several books that, uh, I personally enjoyed and found helpful over the years, but I'll get to that towards the end. Um, now he, talks about this in his book. He first started social engineering people at a very early age. When he was 12, he convinced a bus driver to tell him where he could get one of the hole punches that were used by the public transit in LA for a school project and found a bunch of discarded transfer slips near the bus company in the dumpster, allowing him to use the public transportation in LA for free. Um, he was heavily involved with some high school aged friends that were into phone freaking, mostly used for making free calls and pulling pranks. He discussed one of his favorites often in interviews, and that was when he used his ham skills to take over a McDonald's drive through speaker while also being able to see it from a distance. He would tell people that their meal was free, or if he saw that uh, they were obese, um, that they should probably, he would tell them that they should probably order the McSalad instead. Also, you know, yelling about drugs whenever a police officer drove up to the window. Um, a few years later, at the age of 16, he was able to gain access to the ARC computer system owned by DEC, used for developing operating systems for the PDP-11 minicomputers, where he copied the company software for which he was later charged and convicted in 1988. And that was 12 months in prison and three years of supervised release. And we will talk about some about his time in prison there. Uh, during the later portion of his release, he illegally uh, accessed Pacific Bell voicemail computers. This led to a warrant being issued for his arrest, arrest and more than two years on the run. And the reason that he went on the run is because he had spent like his last months in last I think it was eight months of his first uh, prison stint in solitary confinement. And that will drive anyone insane and make them not want to go back. A lot of people would say that um, he hacked into Pacific Bell, like he was running code, cracking brute force software from his house to gain access to the system. What actually happened is that he walked into the office and took a bunch of computer manuals and codes that were lying around and use those to access the internal systems. And he did that by social engineering the guards. Now, and, you know, obviously pretending like he belonged there. Mitnick always talked about how um, it was more of a social engineering exercise to get into places that he wanted to access, and that his goal was to access all the major phone networks and gain access to their network switches, which would give him complete control of the network. That being said, he talked a lot about how this was all a hobby for him and he never took anything for profit, which led to some of the difficulties in prosecuting him later on. During his time on the run, he illegally accessed several systems and copied information for the sake of learning more and in order to be a better hacker. 
One of his favorite exploits that he talked about often in interviews was the time he hacked in the local Wi-Fi towers and was able, well, I, I wrote that wrong, local cell towers and was able to get the phone numbers of the FBI agents that were tailing him as well as use the numbers to figure out who the mole was that was informing on him. Using the phone numbers of the FBI agents and the cell phones, he, he was able to track all of their locations, and he set up some scripting to automatically warn him when the officers went to certain locations, like his home apartment. Now, after getting the alert that um, they had been near his apartment but had not arrested him and had not entered, he figured that they must be getting a warrant to come inside. So he was able to get rid of all of his electronics, and he even put a box of donuts in the fridge labeled FBI Donuts. The FBI did show up, but left the donuts untouched. Um, during the writing of this, I did re-listen to his book, uh, Ghost in the Wires. Uh, hoping to get some inspiration on the things that I could bring here. I also re-watched his interview on Hack 5 with Shannon Morse from about 11 years ago. I remember watching it the first time, and I loved hearing him talk about how he was able to get people to give him access to things simply by convincing them. I I have never been on that, that quick on my feet when it comes to conversations and steering people to the things that I, I want, but his discussions were good enough that I was able to see when people were trying to do it to me. Um, he was able to talk to security officials and secretaries and find the people he needed in order to get the access he wanted to be able to learn the things that would allow him to meet his goals of accessing various systems. He mentioned several times that a lot of his exploits with friends were never about using the access that he acquired, but about knowing that he could use the access that he had acquired, including like massive numbers of credit cards. He said that he could have um, used a different credit card number for every purchase for the rest of his life and he never would have run out of credit card numbers. Uh, a lot of his phone freaking skills came in handy during his time as he was able to reroute numbers so that a call he made would look like it came from a local internal to the network, which would provide some level of assurance to the people that he was calling that he was legitimate. He did write a bunch of exploits and use and modify other people's codes and create create programmatical backdoors, but in most cases he had to convince someone to install said backdoors and the exploits still needed him to have gained access somehow. Remember some of this later when it comes time to talk about his security lectures and consultation. He used what he learned doing this to create methods that I still see on a daily basis to help improve security. He spent two and a half years on on the run. Uh, the first pseudonym that he used was Eric Weiss, which was the birth name of Harry Houdini as one of his identities. I found it interesting how he was able to make a new identity and get all the information for it multiple times. Just as an example, one of the techniques he used to avoid suspicion was to convince the DMV to give him a learner's permit, since that was less suspicious than just getting a driver's license or a replacement driver's license, and then take the refresher course saying that he was just back from overseas and then using the DMV loaner car to pass the test, thus acquiring a new driver's license under the new identity. It required a bit more work, but that was what would avoid suspicion. He has had several jobs while on the run, including like a process server, which I find hilarious, um, being served legal documents from a federal fugitive. Uh, while maintaining his different identities, he still continued to crack various systems, such as Sun Microsystems, just to look at the source code. The book Ghost in the Wires really goes into details in all the ways that he was able to gain remote access to different systems. I highly recommend that you check it out. 
He also discussed the, uh, the, the way that cell phones were changing at the time and how he uh, gained the code for the Microtech Ultralight cell phone, which was the first of its kind. Many of the times that Mitnick got caught, and he was caught on several occasions, were due to the same exploit that he used against so many other companies, or so many companies. The people that he trusted around him. Many times it was friends or the friends of friends that was his undoing. Um, I'm not going to go into any names on that, uh, because it was a very common theme throughout the book. There were also many people that Mitnick mentioned in very fond ways. People that he developed relationships with all over the world that he respected and talked or worked against in order to gain access to places and things. Once again, read the book. After his final arrest in 1995, he was held for four years where the prosecutors admitted that his rights were being violated and that they were going to make an example of him to the hackers of the world. Many of his earlier crimes were not covered by any laws and it was just difficult to assess his current crimes due to the fact that there were no damages and no profit on his part. There were many claims against Mitnick that were false, such as him traveling to Israel and a couple of hacks that were done by friends of his that he got the blame for, such as hacking the federal government. Uh, later, the prosecuting attorney would plead to the judge, now this is actually during his first time in jail, that if Mitnick had access to a touchstone phone that he could call NORAD and whistle into the phone and launch nukes, thus starting World War III. This accusation was enough to get him put into solitary confinement for eight months until he was willing to sign a plea deal. Um, what he found fun during that time was they limited his ability to call people to his mother, his aunt, his wife, and his lawyer, but only under supervision. But um, he was also only limited to making calls only during business hours when his wife was working. He found a way around this using a bit of phone freaking. Uh, what he did was he start walking around with the long cord of the phone and then scratching his back on the phone itself. He then reached behind himself in front of the guard that was watching him and hung up the phone and knew that he had 18 seconds before the uh, tone started. He would then surreptitiously continue to scratch behind himself while faking a continued conversation and dial behind his back to his wife's work number and... It was since it was a jail or a prison, it, it, all um, phone calls were collect. So he had to start out with a zero and then dial the number, and would time his conversation, his fake conversation, so that the word Kevin would be the word spoken right after the operator said, "Whom should I say is calling?" Now this worked for several weeks when he was approached by the staff at the prison and they asked him how he did it. He denied everything, even though they were recording all of his conversations, so they obviously knew that he had done something. Afterwards, they put his phone, his own phone, into solitary and would only allow him to access the handset. This was actually, like I was saying, during his first time in prison. His second time, they started with him isolated and were able to use that. To essentially coerce him. Uh, he was denied a bail hearing, which was the first time in history that happened. The people prosecuting him used that and told him that they would run him through every jurisdiction on every charge that they could and pursue the maximum sentence every time where he would be continued to be held without bail for the entire duration. Essentially saying that even if he got off on the charges, he would still spend even more years in jail, even if he won. Eventually, they were able to use that to convince him to make a plea deal since they did have evidence against him of some crimes. 
um, he was able to plea for almost time served along with a supervised release. Now that happened in 99. He was released in 2000. So there were a few months there where he was still in jail. And now he was surprised also when um, the government asked him to do some public speaking and discussing of um, security. The time he was in prison, there were many protests and many people that showed support for him. Bumper stickers, t-shirts, protests, and even a banner in the sky that he could see from his cell. Um, somebody flying a plane, dragging a banner. Now, all of them, it was free Kevin. During his probation, there was a considerable amount of time that he was not able to use a computer, computer with some minor exceptions. But the U.S. government wanted him to give a presentation on how they could improve their own security, as did many of the companies that he had infiltrated, as well as many others. Despite the restrictions, he was able to make a pretty good living on the talking circuit, as well as travel, which required permission from his parole officer. In the book, Mitnick also discussed being able to overcome his crippling stage fright with the help of a speech coach. And he did talk about the many thousands of dollars he ended up paying to that speech coach in order to be able to get up on stage and talk freely. After the end of his probation of not being able to touch a digital device, he started his own security slash pen testing firm and continued to do public speaking as well as advising on the best methods of implementing security. I remember listening to one of his transcribed talks about inoculating employees at large companies against the type of attacks that he used on a regular basis by providing training and also having the company send out phony emails and having the employees catch them and learn from them if they made a mistake. This practice is still very much in use at many companies and I still see it used all the time now, especially, you know, spear phishing, phishing attempts and things like that. This gets people used to the idea of catching these things, and when a real one comes in, they are more likely to catch it and report it than they are to make a mistake. Now, he wrote or co and or co-authored four separate books, The Art of Deception, The Art of Intrusion, uh, Ghost in the Wires, and The Art of Invisibility. Um, I've enjoyed two of these books, and we even reviewed one of those on the show and discussed the level of paranoia involved, and that was The Art of Invisibility that we discussed on the show. Um, it was a good episode and, and the books were extremely informative. Um, one last thing that I do want to note, and it's kind of sad, is that uh, Mitnick passed away at the age of 59 on July 16th, but he leaves behind a wife that was pregnant with their first child. Now, he battled pancreatic cancer for 14 months, so him and his wife had to know what they were getting into when... when when she got pregnant at 59 years old and 14 months, or well, sometime 14 months ago, he found out that he had pancreatic cancer. So, and that's, that's everything that I have written there. I kind of went through that a little bit faster than I thought I would, but, um, did you guys want to add anything? Admittedly, I didn't know much about him. So this was really interesting. Um, yeah, this is very interesting for me as well. Um, what do you think his um, impact, as it were, on you know on computing and security was? Well, just him um, showing everyone because there were even several times in in uh, several of the discussions that he did where he was able to show that it was social engineering that got him uh, the most information or the most access. Um, so showing that 
the weakest link in any computer system is actually the people involved in, in, in mm-hmm. that and showing how to uh, try and protect against that. That was important. I mean, um, yes, there were movies based on his exploits loosely, um, but y- y- think about the things that, that I've talked about here and then think about the, um, the movie hackers, you know, the dumpster diving, the, the social engineering, the calling to, to get the, um, the, the dial in, um, dial up number for the modem and things like that. So I would say that he had a, a pretty large impact on how we view security from a, a business standpoint. I think it's I think it's a positive thing. It's it's kind of cool that these companies set aside all their hubris to actually listen to this guy and uh take the things that he would tell them seriously in terms of how they could improve their security and uh you know any suggestions he might have for that because I mean who could who would have a more valuable opinion than somebody like Mitnick when it comes to right improving these things because he probably he probably uh exploited things that they would have never even considered when they were building the system you know right and as a pen tester he actually got to continue doing the things that he got into so much trouble for and that he loved doing and they'd pay him to go in there and break into these (laughs) these different places yeah that's awesome well that about does it for our innards Why don't we move on to vibrations from the ether? Now, we did get uh, one email for vibrations from the ether. It was specifically to me, and I thought about not including it in the show. But um, I did want to say the things again and add a little bit of an addendum. Um, Sunfun sent me a message. It's Jeff in Orlando. Um, Howdy, Joe. I'm the one that sent you the pine phone. Thank you again for that. I still have it. I still um, mess around with it. I greatly appreciate it. Just so happens, I also intensely watched some of the top podcaster docs regarding health and diet. You did not say what meds you were taking for weight loss. Was that Ozempic or the other equivalents? New findings with precautions and explanations as to why those meds are bad. Jeff in Orlando. I responded, um, Fentermine. I refused the Ozempic because I did not want to contribute to the problems that people with diabetes have getting it. But yeah, I saw some of those studies as well where they were talking about um, Ozempic being like having really terrible side effects for some people. So it's definitely something you only want to take if, you know, you actually have diabetes. But um, I also wanted to mention, Jeff in Orlando, that sometime next year I'm supposed to be in the Orlando area. Now I know that Orlando is a large place. But we do have time. I wouldn't mind uh, trying to figure something out and seeing if um, we can hang out while I'm there. I don't have the exact dates yet. My friend has yet to tell me when they are getting married. And um, like, I, I would love to hang out with a listener. Just let me know. And that does it for our vibrations this episode. Housekeeping Rare. and announcements. Thank you for listening to this episode of Mintcast. If you see something you'd like to hear about, tell us. Send us email at mintcast at mintcast.org. Join us live on YouTube. Post at the Mintcast subreddit. Uh, chat with us on Telegram and Discord. Or post directly at https colon slash slash mintcast.org. Our next episode will be 2 p.m. U.S. Central Time on Sunday, August 20th, 2023. We have a link in the show notes to get that converted to your time zone. 
Our next roundtable live stream is 2 p.m. U.S. Central Time on Saturday, August 12th, 2023. And there's a link in the show notes to get that converted to your time zone. Live stream information is at mintcast.org slash livestream. Uh, wrapping it up, where can we hear more from you, Joe? Well, I'm on a couple other podcasts. I'm on the Linux Link Tech Show, which is at tllts.org. I'm on the Linux Lugcast, which I did miss this last Friday, linuxlugcast.com. Um, you can send me an email directly, jb at mintcast.org, or you can buy me a coffee on Kofi. Link in the show notes. Moss? I'm on Full Circle Weekly News, Distro Hoppers Digest. You can email me at bardmoss at pm.me. I'm on Mastodon as at zyvala at hosttux.social. My other contact information can be found at itsmoss.com. Bill? Well, you can email me, bill at mintcast.org. I'm bill underscore h on Discord. I'm at wchauser3 at fostodon.org on Mastodon. Also, check out my two other shows, Linux OTC and Three Fat Truckers. There's links to both of those in the show notes. Majid? So, you can get a hold of me as, uh, by email, drmajid.mincast.org. I'm at AtypicalDoctor on Twitter, but I don't know for how long. I'm very much tempted to um, uh, flee that sinking ship. you got to call it X now, not Twitter. It's X. Oh, my God. As I said... I might well be off it. Um, I'm, a, I'm, <laughs> atyp- I'm atypical anesthetist on Instagram and threads and the atypical anesthetist podcast on Spotify. Before we leave, we want to make sure to acknowledge some of the people who make Mintcast possible. Bill for our audio editing. Archive.org for hosting our audio files. Hobstar for our logo. InitRD for the animated Discord logo. Londoner for our time sinks. Bill for hosting the server which runs our website, website maintenance, and the Nextcloud server on which we host our show notes and raw audio. And the Linux Mint development team for the fine distro we love to talk about. Thanks, Thanks Clem. Clem. Thanks, Clem. Thanks, Clem. And co. This has been another episode of the Mintcast podcast. The show notes for this episode are at mintcast.org. You can send us email at mintcast at mintcast.org. You can find more information about Linux Mint at www.linuxmint.com. You can follow both Mintcast and Linux Mint on Twitter, at Mintcast and at Linux underscore Mint. Thanks to Mark Blasco at podcastthemes.com for our theme music, and thanks for listening to this episode of the Mint.